Hey guys, just a quick note before we begin that the show may contain spoilers and adult language, but that's just because we know how to have a good time. Stick around, you'll be glad you did. You are here for me to enlighten you. You ever act like this again, you're barred for life. It's just violent bass. It's kind of embarrassing. If you know you're lying, then you can forget them. Oh, I get it. It's very clever. <laughs> Hello, peoples, and welcome to Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. I am the illustrious Jason Peters, and with me, as always, is the man who once found himself taken hostage by an army of clowns in a downtown bank, Mr. Ryan Siebold! What's up, Jason? How's it going, buddy? <laughs> it's going pretty good, man. Like I said uh, before, and I'll say it again, anytime I get to come here and talk movies with you, it is a good day, sir. So, uh, But I mean, first, we, we have got ourselves a little something to talk about here, Ryan, with this uh, whole clown hostage situation, man. Why don't you, why don't you give us a little something? You know, it, it really wasn't a clown. Uh, it wasn't a hostage situation. It was for a film. I was an extra. Oh, in, really? Um, yeah, yeah. It uh it was it was like a, a little off off Hollywood film by Martin Scorsese's brother who actually is a clown and he was making uh Jim, making right? Jim Scorsese. We all know Jim. Yes, he's a famous clown. Go on. Well, he goes by he goes by Jim Scorsese, but it's like, you know, with little squeaky horns, you know. He doesn't really pronounce the last part of his name. He just uses the <laughs> the I can't do it. <laughs> no, but okay, we all know what you're talking about. Okay, so yes, so right, you and right. Jim score and honk sound are in a bank. Yes. Go on, but yes. you're shooting a movie. Go on. We're shooting a movie. Yeah, yeah. It uh, <laughs> it was off the the Joe Pesci thing, you know. Um, you know, is that what you think of funny, funny like a clown? And then you know, the, yes, actually, I do. And then you, the camera turns around, and Mark, uh, and Joe Pesci actually is a clown, and so. Uh, you know, there there were scenes like that. It was fun. It was a good time. <laughs> wow, that that's some sort of misunderstanding. Because, like I said, I thought it was I thought it was an actual hostage situation. Didn't know the whole thing no, was made no, up. No, 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 no. Well, and it, because yeah. here's the thing, Ryan is I was actually it was funny because I was actually down in a cafe and I was talking to someone else who was there the day he was. One of the people that was also taken hostage, he had no idea. It was a movie. We talked about it before I brought him in. As far as he was concerned, it was a whole real life scenario. Please welcome, I brought him here today, Eddie the Axe. I just got to tell you that this whole experience was very traumatic for me. I, I know it's funny for you guys. Look, <laughs> no, enough, no pun intended, clowning around here, folks. But <laughs> the fact that you shot this in an actual bank and you did not tell us that the, there was a movie going on, sir, that was very inappropriate. Seriously, that that is very controversial. Yeah, no, I mean, well, because you know, there's one thing about, you know, like I've heard about it, this whole sort of like cinema nouveau filmmaking style right, that they're talking right. about, right? Where it's like, there's only a yeah. couple people. We saw it in Bowfinger, actually. It was introduced in that film and it's kind of since taken off. So... I guess this this Joe or Jim Scorsese was kind of one of the pioneers of that. Yeah, that you know, this was uh, hyper realism. You know, we yeah, were kind of going not for you, going, not for uh, you. It wasn't hyper realism. With- for you, it was a fucking paycheck. <laughs> did you get paid scale? <laughs> well, but did you get paid? Dude, there, there are people that are traumatized, yeah. bro. 
These people traumatized, were traumatized by clowns, and you guys just they fucked with them. That is so not cool. I mean, anything for a buck, right? It's Hollywood. Dude, the no. movie didn't even get released. There we didn't no even movie. see the movie. You've got people who are like literally <laughs> have to schedule weekly psychiatric appointments to deal with the trauma. It didn't even come it, out. What was it worth? It was, it was on Quibi. Get, <laughs> calm down. It was fine. It was a great <laughs> six months. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I handed over $10,000 to one of your people over there. I forgot what his name was, but he took the bag of money. We haven't seen that bag. I got fired. <laughs> we called that funny money. This man lost his job because of you, I Ryan. lost my job, Ryan. What do you have to say about that? I, I don't. Ironically, ironically, I've had to take up a job as a clown. And it, you know what? <laughs> and I've been performing children's, I've been performing weddings, bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs, uh, birthday parties. I hate it. Every day is torture. Every day. <laughs> well, welcome to my life as the co-host of this podcast. Sir. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, hey, if, you, uh, if you're uncomfortable with the last nine minutes, Ryan, uh, eight minutes, however long it's been, let me tell you, we have got a lot longer to go. Before we get into this week's film, Eddie, yes, why don't you go ahead and give people a little bit of a description about uh, the Bloody Bits horror program that you run. The Bloody Bits Horror Show is a once-a-week podcast that is hosted by me, your host, Eddie the Axe Jefferson. I am joined, of course, as always, by the co-host with the co-host, Tim Yobo and Candace. So what we do is we talk about horror movies. Uh, sometimes it's funny. Like uh, last week, we, we talked about the movie uh, Butt Boy, which is about <laughs> a... Uh, it, it's, it's actually a very interesting movie. It's... Uh, film noir-esque, more neo-noir police procedural about a serial killer who stuffs people up his ass. Oh, wow. Uh, the, week, the week before that was I Spit on Your Grave. So nice. we really kind of run the gamut, and you can always check that out at bloodybits.com. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, and you guys are on all the streaming platforms, and uh, yeah. yeah, great yeah. time. Uh, they've actually, interestingly enough, we've actually done a couple of the same films. Uh, it's funny because... Ryan and I never really intended for this season to be so horror and sci-fi filled, but, uh, you know, we, we, we draw our films randomly and yeah, we've just had a lot of those episodes. So like, um, I know one of the earlier guys you did, uh, the earlier episodes you guys did was Videodrome. We did that in season one. Oh yeah. And God, then, uh, we started my favorite. <laughs> we, we loved it, man. Mm -hmm. It's so good. So good. And then, uh, yeah, we actually started off season two with a one and a half hour dead alive review which means that uh, you got us beat by a whole 90 minutes and a whole other part <laughs> we, okay so uh, uh fair warning about my podcast we, we tend to run a little bit long <laughs> well you've come to the right place sir uh, if people are listening to this right now it's because they're used to people droning on for way too long about films so uh i think it's a good fit you might say it's a perfect fit Ooh, oh a perfect fit for perfect blue which is a perfect transition. Ryan, why don't you go I, ahead I and give say. this week's film. This week's film is from 1997 uh, from the great director Satoshi Khan. This is Perfect Blue. IMDb describes this as a pop singer gives up her career to become an actress, but she slowly goes insane when she starts being stalked by an obsessed fan and what seems to be a ghost from her past. Uh, Jason, what did you think about this movie? 
Ryan, as always, I am going to be quite happy to tell you right after we listen to this trailer for Perfect Blue. Excuse me, who are you? Excuse me, who are you? was a pop star. This is Mima's last performance with Cham. Who desired to become an actress. I really hope that I can entertain you just the same as an actress. But sometimes, aspirations can be deadly. I'm always watching Mima's room! In the world of make-believe. This is when Mima proves herself. The price of fame. Don't worry, Mima, it'll be all right. May not be worth the cost of identity. Where did this come from? How do they know so much? Innocence is lost. Dreams become nightmares. And privacy no longer exists. Where everything you do can be seen by everyone. And those you trust are really those you should fear. Your life no longer belongs to you. Excuse me, who Manga are you? Entertainment me, presents you? Satoshi Khan's animated psychological thriller, Perfect Blue. Excuse me, who are you? Excuse me, who are you? All right, so let's go ahead and let's jump into it. I know where I think we should start, Ryan. Where do you think is a good place for us to start? At the beginning. At the beginning. Now, when Perfect Blue starts, we open on rays of blue and white light that stream diagonally across the screen. There's a loud thundering sound that drones for a while before what are obvious allusions to Power Rangers appear on screen shouting generic action cartoon catchphrases. For a moment, it feels like we may have started the wrong film, but it soon becomes clear that this is little more than a traditional red herring opening. Now, Eddie and Ryan, from here, uh, I thought it was really interesting the way that they set up this film because, you know, again, it's the it's they're showing this Power Rangers thing going on. You think it might be that. Then we realize we're at this sort of fair because we see some kids run out of the performance. They run past some adults, some grown men that are looking at these magazines of these girls that end up being part of a pop trio called Cham. Now, before we even continue, okay, right? Like, I did think it was funny. I don't know if there's anything here, but I thought it was funny that it was a female group called CHAM, C-H-A-M, exclamation point, all caps, which is strikingly similar to WHAM, all caps, exclamation point, just with a W instead of a C. I have no idea if that's supposed to be some sort of weird, (laughs) obscure reference to, like, they're the female WHAM, but I did think that was kind of funny. Now, the other thing that I thought was hysterical is that uh, they show these, (laughs) they show Cham on stage. And again, they're these very sort of pretty, you know, Korean, Japanese pop trio um, that we see, uh, especially today. And like they pan across like the media. There's a bunch of like press reporters and people that are like watching in awe. And I don't know if you guys saw, there's exactly one guy who's just like so incredibly disinterested. He like is looking down into the left. And like, looks like he would rather be anywhere else while literally everyone else in the crowd is just super into it. 
I wanted to know that guy's story. I thought I just, for some reason, like he stood out so much. I couldn't not watch that guy. Um, His friends drag him there. Yeah, exactly. But <laughs> we soon learn that the protagonist of our movie is a girl named Mima, which I kept saying Mima the entire time. It was very annoying. But um, we see her backstage. Mima, like grandma, like me. Yeah, like, like grandma Mima. Like yeah. <laughs> every single time I wrote it down, <laughs> I, I said to myself Mima, and then pictured like you know a very overweight woman in a hammock, right? Like. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out but, to all um, the Meemaws out there. <laughs> God damn it. I lost another 5% of our listenership. I'm always yeah, doing that. Right. <sighs> well, just real quick while we're, while we're covering it, one thing I would love to point out is the uh, the beginning you're talking about, the yeah. Rangers attacking Powertron, that, that's clearly oh, yeah. your go-go Power Ranger moment. Totally. That's got that very crisp and sharp 90s anime style. And when we cut away from this, what we're seeing is – a very human version of animation. Mm-hmm. All of the people in the crowd, everybody that's not the the J-pop band, look very, very dull. They, they look like just a regular-ass bunch of people. Sure. Which, for that time, in 1997 anime you know, that was coming out of Japan, that was very uncharacteristic. Yeah, that's interesting. And it actually does sort of set up a theme that we're going to see through the course of the film, where... You know, a lot of the animation style, specifically with reference to the way that uh, the images are colored and the color schemes that are used, uh, we, I think that, you know, the film uses that to great effect to sort of differentiate fantasy from reality, where oftentimes the fantasy is really just big and candy candy colored and bright and vivid. And then almost, you know, what we would see sort of influence Joker 20 years later, a lot of the sort of reality tends to have that sort of like neon soaked green sickly like you can almost see these like radiation particles in the air almost. And so, um, yeah. So, you know, doing that right up front, like you're talking about does establish a theme that we're going to see over the course of the film really strongly done. Now, speaking of themes that are going to be established uh, in terms of visuals and otherwise, the next sequence, once again, sort of shows us it's where, it's where we start to get into a little bit of the sort of temporal manipulation that's going to take place over the course of this film. A lot of this film is you're not really certain what's real and what's not. And the way that that's done is actually really technically skillful. And we're going to get into exactly why that is. So with this sequence, for example, uh, we're watching Mima and she's doing these very mundane tasks, right? She's riding the train. She's doing the grocery shopping. And then that's intercut with her at the aforementioned show, the fair, announcing her retirement, right? And we see the crowd very sort of shocked and disappointed. And we're also introduced to a couple characters that are going to play the role of antagonist, which is like these sort of rowdy teens. And then this guy that we're going to end up learning later on is called Me Mania, which that's some some of a name. Uh, I did also love the fact that uh, just like any good anime, uh, it does this. This film actually kicks off the credit sequence with a traditional Japanese animation song. Right, just straight out of any anime you've you've seen since 1990. So, oh, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot going on here within these sort of first sort of like seven to ten minutes. Right now, Eddie, what I wanted to ask you is sort of in in uh, piggybacking off of what you said earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, what were some of the other takeaways that you came away with from this initial sort of setup, and uh, you know how well do you think that that setup what was going to come later? I think that the the setup is very interesting. So you you say that she announces that she's breaking away from the band Chan, but she she can't, right? Actually, one of her her bandmates 
stops and says, hey, what she's trying to say is that she's outgrown us and she's going to metamorphosis out, outside mm. of our band. And that's actually kind of the, the theme of the song that, that they sing. And as far as like the, the, the bad kids, the bad kids are throwing uh, cans and shit. And, and this is clearly like we're, we're finding out that they're like a B-tier pop band. They're not like, mm-hmm. this isn't like your NSYNC or your Backstreet Boys. This is like your uh, 98 Degrees, you know? <laughs> they're, not, they're not up there just yet. Um, and yeah, well, the, they haven't even had like a song in like the top 100 yet or whatever. No, they're gonna have that big moment earlier on later. Yeah, yeah. No, so yeah, so they're still all. on the rise. They're young. And, they've got enough of a following, but yeah, to your point, they're not mega pop stars that are recognized walking right. down the street. So this this really is like kind of a fork in the road for Mima, and she's wanting to go a different direction. And by the way, the the creepy guy, he's like a security guard that's working there, but. I love that that one of the things in one of the scenes, one of the shots is her on the stage and he's holding his hand out with his palm flat as though he is holding Mima in the palm of his hand. Like she is a possession for him. And uh, then, yeah, like you said, then we, we juxtapose that with her doing what a regular ass person does riding the bus uh, um shopping for groceries picking out the right food for her fish it's 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 a really interesting and i think brilliant setup for for what's about to to happen definitely definitely yeah that uh that palm of the hand that palm of the hand scene almost kind of uh was reminiscent to me of like uh like a music box almost like something you'd wind up with a little ballerina that would spin inside a music box or something like that like uh the way he kind of just like opened her hand, his hand up and she was like just kind of dancing around within the palm. I don't know. Yeah, don't know. no. And then there's a lot of visual references over the course of this film, too, to um, like I'm thinking of that great shot at the end once the reveal happens when Rumi sees the lights. Right. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, again, because all of this is supposed to very much reflect the way that the characters see both you know, themselves, but really each other. I mean, I think everybody but Mima is really looking at Mima, and then Mima's obviously looking internally. I also didn't realize until just saying it out loud right now, like, how close Me-mania is to Mima. Mima, Me-mania. It's like, right there. Just noticed, just recognized it right now. (laughs) (laughs) You'd think someone like, you'd think I would have noticed it You nailed it. You found it. But uh, yeah, so from there we go back to the apartment and, you know, she's alone, Mima that is, and everything's quiet. She's sort of taking down the champ posters and we see the first signs of trouble to come, right? So she gets this weird note about how there's this thing called Mima's room and it's online and, you know, she's talking to her mom and then she ends up getting another call and it's one of those like heavy breathing calls, right, where they don't really say anything. And then, you know, she clicks back and then she gets a fax that just simply has the word traitor written on it over and over. So clearly there's some shit that's about to start brewing, right? Oh, absolutely. Now, and, and one thing I love with this is that her room, it does not look like a uh, chill synthwave vibes room. Like <laughs> it looks like it's a fucking room that's lived in. It, and yeah. just that kind of attention to detail is is one of the hallmarks of this film. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this movie is animated, but, you know, it very it very easily could not have been, especially with today's filmmaking technology. You know, it wasn't I mean, it it, it uses the strengths of animation in terms of being able to play to some of those more surreal elements and, you know, doing the hyper real color schemes and some of the 
uh, anime callouts and whatnot. But yeah, I mean, even down to the fact that uh, in just a minute, um, we're going to get to where she gets like the Apple computer, you know, there's, <laughs> a, there's a lot of a, a real realistic detail to sort of make this world feel like um, it's lived in and it's an actual, uh, you know, it's real life. So part of uh, Mima's progression is that she's decided she's going to make that leap that so many pop stars decide they're going to make, right? Where they are going to become an actress. They're going to, which I never know why that's the ultimate goal, right? Like, I don't know that being a, a pop star is is a notch below being an actress, right? Like, I don't I, know. Ariana I, Grande seems like she lives a finely charmed life. I, don't I think, think nobody's ever happy with what they are, right? Because, like, you, you get a famous comedian, they want to be an actor. You get a famous actor, they want to be a comedian. You get a famous <laughs> musician, they want to be an actor. Like, That's true. They, I say heard that rappers, too. Uh, like, they say rappers always want to play basketball and basketball players always want to rap. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they say the same thing. They say that uh, musicians always want to be actors and actors always want to be musicians. Which is why we hate Jared Leto, right? Because he got to be both and hugely successful at both. It's like, come on, dude. Is Pick weird. one. Save save the rest for, for spread the wealth here. Come on. The only content profession in the whole entire universe? Podcast host. <laughs> yeah, we're perfectly sure. content right where mm-hmm. we're at. <laughs> we know our spot. We we stay in our lane. We know it's Yeah, exactly. We, we set that bar low and we rise to it every single day. <laughs> <laughs> at least we're consistent. <laughs> so it's the first day on set for Miss Mima, and she's on a TV cop drama called Double Bind. Now, she tells the manager, Rumi, the female manager, that is, because she has uh, her, her manager and then her agent. Um, and so we get Rumi, who herself used to be a pop, uh, pop star, and she basically tells her to ignore it. And back on set, uh, Mima meets Aerie who is the lead actress and she's kind of the one who like has it all is widely admired. She's who Mima wants to be right now in the, alongside this, we've got the male agent Tadakoro. I believe is how you say it. I'm sure we're going to butcher these names. Like we do all of our foreign names, but we try, we try real hard. Um, She's basically trying to get her more lines because on this episode, she only has like one, I think one line that she's practicing over and over that she finally gets to say. And, uh, when the when the, the the agent Tadakoro opens the letter, it actually ends up being a letter bomb. Remember those kids? Yeah, back in the nineties, <laughs> letter bombs were a thing. <laughs> was it was that Kaczynski? Was that the guy? Or was that the Oklahoma City bomber? Ah, uh, I forget. T- Ted Not Kaczynski's important. the Unabomber. So oh, yeah, yeah, he's the Unabomber. Yeah, I forget yeah, who the letter bomb guy is. He blew up a building. I, it just reminded me of the whole anthrax scare that we had recently. Yeah, yeah. and then there was the anthrax, yeah. Wow, look at that. Fun times. Fun times. Ladies and gentlemen, anthrax. <laughs> anthrax and letter bombs. See, it wasn't always so good, guys. It's always sucked. <laughs> good thing we've given up on the Postal Service. That, that is a, a terrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and and after the letter bomb goes off, obviously he gets injured, and we see a small crap, scrap of paper. It says, warning, next one real. So we're starting to get the sense that, okay, you know, this chick might start to be a little bit targeted here. Um, Ryan, one of the things I wanted to ask you, because I know you're a big animation guy especially, um, is kind of what you felt about the overall look and the overall animation style and the color and just all of the visuals of this one. So I was pleasantly surprised to take a deep dive into this. I didn't know much about um, 
uh, the director, Satoshi Kon. But uh, so this guy came up with uh, Katsushiro Otomo, who directed Akira, which is, <laughs> well, I mean, the granddaddy of <laughs> yeah. all, right? Like, that's the best. And it's so, so uh, good. Yeah. Still so good. You can watch so, it as many times as you want. And it always holds up. Uh, Katsushiro Otomo and Satoshi Kon uh, came up together in the manga scene in the 80s, um, long before Akira was a thing, and they developed uh, Akira together. They went on to work on movies like Rujin Z and Memories, which I need to see both. Uh, this, this cat Satoshi Kon was actually given the, um, uh, the Windsor McKay Award at the Annie's, the Animation Awards. And uh, just to kind of put that in perspective... Uh, previous winners are uh, Mamoru Oshii, uh, who did Ghost in the Shell, Walt Ooh, Disney, wow. Osamu Tezuka, who did Astro Wait, Boy. who was that? Which Walt is like, Disney? I know. I'm probably, I'm, probably, I'm probably butchering Disney? these names. Uh, well, we're trying, though, everybody. We're trying. <laughs> so uh, anyway, all that to say, this dude came from things, and he did stuff, and uh, he was a badass. And this was on full display with Perfect Blue. Unfortunately, he didn't do a ton of stuff. Um, but I need to go see Paprika, um, and yep. uh, which we have on our list, by the way. Paprika I mean, is amazing. Super is stoked it? for it. Did yeah, I, I hope so. So, um, yeah, I was really, really st- like, because I, I was instantly drawn in by what I was watching. Uh, unfortunately, as much as I do love animation, um, I'm not as well versed in my anime and Japanimation as I would love to be. So mm. I just never know where to start. Right? Like, it's such a I mean, it's really is a different world all its own. And um, so I, I'm I'm really glad when this podcast gives me curveballs like this that I can, you know, kind of dive into a little bit. So, yeah. Eddie, are you uh, are you much of an anime guy? No, I hate anime. Um, I hate <laughs> anime. I hate animation. I hate Disney. Anime is one of those things, though, for me. It's it's like uh, it's like a sushi restaurant. Like you want somebody to check it out before you go there. You know what I mean? Like you want <laughs> right, somebody right. that you trust to be like, listen, I know it's most of it's bad, okay? This <laughs> one's all right. So go check it out. I'm I'm I promise you perfect blues okay, Akira's okay. Helsing is another one you should check out. Yes. That's, that's a lot of fun. Dude, and uh, Trigun. Trigun is very good. Good. Have you uh, have have you checked out Death Note? Uh yeah, you know what? I like Death didn't, Note didn't, up until didn't, didn't do it for you. I liked Death Note up until they decided we were going to work together and get in this big building together. And then I was like, yeah, I'm no, done. I, I, like, <laughs> I like the cat and mouse. I like the, uh, the, the two of them playing chess against each other. Once they yeah. join forces, oh, fuck that. I'm done. Interesting. Yeah, because I'm, uh, I'm kind of in your vote. I think I like anime a little bit better than you guys do, but like not substantially. And my daughter loves anime. And mm. specifically, she loves manga. She's read like all the mangas that are out there and she's seen a ton of the animes and yeah, I'm, and so for me, I think what it is is there's people out there that just love that style of animation across all the different genres, Mm -hmm. but you do kind of forget too, that it's like, it's, you know, animation has expanded a lot here in the U S and I think, I feel that it's been that way uh, for, for longer in Japan to the point where it's like, you can't just say, do you like animation anymore? Because animation yeah. doesn't just mean Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny, right? You have adult animation. You have yeah, children's yeah. animation. You have family animation. You have, like, 
outright just offensive animation, right? It's like there's all yeah. the different genres of non-animated films that you have are now represented by animation. It's oh, crazy. totally. And then, like, I used to go uh, check out the Spike and Mike film festivals. Which oh, yeah, totally. You have to be wow. ancient to remember that shit. But Wow. I haven't thought yeah, about that in forever, no and, and all of that <laughs> shit. And I, I'll digress again. I am obsessed with, to, to a degree of it being a problem, um, the work of Junji Ito. Like, nice, dude. Very nice. Oh, like, we we covered the uh, the the attempt at an Uzumaki movie, and uh, I've heard, yeah, it's not great, but God bless it. The, the I, live I, action one, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I I'm love everything my, uh, Gito does. Tomi and Uzumaki hardcovers right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, we'll have to. But talk I didn't understand. Later. I think there was an animated. Uzumaki, they did. It's coming out. It's supposed to be better. It is or, coming yeah, out, is and it? It's, it looks okay. incredible. Um, Adult Swim is going to be coming out with it, but but they, uh, because of COVID and everything, they're like, look, we're going to hire twice as many people as we thought it was going to take initially, and it's going to take us twice as long, but oh wow, this is fucking Junji Ito, so we're not going to, to mess with it. It's going yeah. to be perfect. So, well, and he's kind of having his kind of moment in the sun right now, too. You know, the last few finally. years, he's kind of blown Fucking up. Fucking finally. Oh. <laughs> anyway. So, yes, but we digress. <laughs> Coming back around here. Um, yeah, like I said, I did think that in terms of, you know, the visual aesthetic, um, I don't know. Did, did uh, And maybe I missed this, but did, I mean, did you guys notice the same thing? Like, to me, it looked like. Like again, we sort of saw that that Joker thing where where reality and fantasy were sort of like shot differently and had different color schemes. Was was that just that, me, or did you guys notice that too? That that is intentional. That 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 okay. is the point of the person who helmed this entire feature. Because I don't know how much research you did into it, but but the original uh, manga that this was based off of had nothing to do with that. There was no uh, picture in a picture in this originally. Really, it was yeah, oh, wow. it was just about a B tier. Um, pop idol who wanted to become an actor and an obsessed fan attacking her. That was it. There was no what we're going to see with um, blurring the lines of fantasy and reality. Wow, that's crazy. And obviously, you know, the uh, manga, you know, the for, for those that don't read mangas, they're all in black and white. So the color scheme and a lot of those visuals would have to be introduced in the film. So that night, uh, that's when we get the uh, <laughs> some of the weirder uh, product placement that I've seen, where uh, Rumi, her agent, buys her an Apple computer. And I just, I mean, I just think it's hysterical that you know Apple's like, oh, you have a uh, a, a sexually ambiguous psychological uh, animation thriller. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That is the Apple <laughs> brand. That is who Apple wants to be. That is who we want to be associated with. Uh, Apple was just... confused back then. In the <laughs> yeah, 90s. 97. Yeah. yeah, 97 was a weird time. <laughs> it was still trying to jobs. find itself. It was doing some weird things, went on some weird dates, got involved with the wrong people. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even just watching her, you know, uh, being introduced to the internet took me aback. Um, yeah. It, it was a stark reminder of when this took place and when this came out. I was like, wait, what? How does she? Oh, that's right. Got it. I thought the same thing, too. Like, I was just picturing the producers like, OK, you know, the the Internet scene's great, but, you know, there's just going to be a lot of people who don't know what this Internet thing is. So can we just can we have an explainer scene where you just sort of tell the audience what right, this right. Internet thing is? Yeah. They're like, we got you, fam. 
This predated <laughs> Clippy. Yeah, all of that. Yeah. Also, I did think it was funny because uh, I thought that was the uh, the 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 most uh, the weirdest product placement since Canada Dry sponsored Videodrome. <laughs> you remember that? <laughs> <laughs> For no other reason that they're like, you're Canadian, we're Canadian. Oh my God, we should be in each other's thing. <laughs> the most polite uh, sponsorship of all time. <laughs> can you can can you put the Canada Dry in the stomach vagina vacuum? No, no. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, I was asking too much. I just thought maybe it could be like a little cooler that he could kind of keep Canada Dry in there, and you know, I was like, oh man, all this body horror stuff's exhausting. You sure go for Canada Dry, reach into mm-hmm. his stomach and pull it out. But no, 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 we, we don't need to do that. When Belly fridge. When you've been shot by a finger gun cancer thing, reach for a cold Canada Dry. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, look, guys, it's a limited niche, but we are going to own that niche. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Those mm-hmm. 0.2% of Canadians are ours. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, uh, and actually, and then so after we get the little explainer course, that's where Mima starts to start get an idea of what's going on in terms of the fact that she may have herself a stalker and i do have a clip of that let's go ahead and listen real quick it was just terrible i screwed up the choreography and forgot my lyrics i feel so sorry for all my fans this morning when i got off the train left foot first all the bad stuff started i always make it a point that my right foot goes first into the train and into the bath (laughs) somebody sure knows me what's this Today was my 21st birthday. Yukiko, Rei, and the staff at the agency held a party for me. It was terrific. Coming home, I went grocery shopping at the usual store. I bought myself mineral water and milk. I get the best water, and the milk just has to be cow brand. I have to allow myself at least that luxury. And of course I get the right brand of food for my precious fish, the kind they like. May 12th, I was impressed with Eri Ochiai's performance in Double Bind. She becomes another person when the camera is rolling. Where did this come from? How do they know so much? Excuse me, who are you? Excuse me, who are you? Excuse me, who are you? Now from there, we start the next morning. We see her back on set. The managers are... I'm sorry, it's not on set. It's actually in the office. And the managers are arguing about... Basically, Mima's future as an actress versus a pop star. And, you know, Mima's on the train. Again, we're starting to see some of these sort of visual motifs pop up where she, in a quick sort of jump cut, sees Mimania's reflection in the window of the train that she's on. And that's where she gets to the office and learns that Cham has debuted in the top 100 at number 83. Mm -hmm. And they're obviously, you know, very happy. Uh, she does. She, you know, plays it off very well. Like, uh, you know, she's just happy for them. And that's when the male agent Todoroki comes with a uh, indecent proposal of sorts and says, hey, you know, I've been talking with a screenwriter and we have a way to get you more lines. Uh, it's also going to help you shed your good girl image. And that's that we want to film a rape scene in this cop drama with uh, you being the girl who's assaulted. And I'm and so glad course, that every podcast I go into, it's just me talking about rape 
Uh, so <laughs> no, it's uh, but 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 what's interesting about this is like you're saying, Cham is on their way up, and she is maybe feeling a little bit of regret. So that fork in the road is dividing a little bit further, right? Maybe she should have been with Cham again. Maybe in her mind, yeah. in her subconscious, she's thinking like, "Fuck, I was a minute away from breaking that top 100." Meanwhile, I'm at the bottom barrel of uh, making this B tier. Japanese drama, and now you're telling me I have to go do a fucking rape scene. Yeah, like, ugh. and and we and I think that we see that over the course of the film in a number of different respects. Where and that's a, and that's an excellent observation. She's sort of given these forks in the road, and you know as. We can sometimes do when we stubbornly hold on to a dream or an idea. You know, there's these little opportunities where she can go back and she can reverse course, but to do so would be admitting failure, you know? And so instead she has to double down on it, you know? So now not only, so, you know, if there was any hesitation about doing a scene of sexual assault, the 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 reality of seeing the success of the people that she just walked away from, well, now she has to do that, right? Because she has to be to match what she sees as their success. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's and unfortunately, and that's also already setting up what is going to be a large theme of this film, which is that, you know, all of this that goes on ends up being a, a very extreme coping mechanism. For a number of bad decisions that Mima made and that she put herself, situations that she put herself in. And, you know, uh, the entire sort of crux of, of what this mystery hinges on is that, you know, all of this is essentially going to be in her head. And she's, you know, making up a large part of this to deal with the trauma of, you know, again, just some seriously, seriously bad decisions that she made. For good reasons, the way that we always do, right? Like nobody's, I mean, nobody's the villain in their own story, right? That whole that's thing? that's definitely part of that. But uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna float an alternate reading yeah. for you real quickly, and that is the the world's idea and the male gaze on a woman and their ownership of her image, like. Okay. What if she wants to do that? What if she's like, you know what? And and we actually kind of reference it with, where they say, well, you know what? Jody, what's her face? Did this? Jody Foster, clearly the accused, is what they're referencing. Um, mm-hmm. But what if like part of the problem? Because we'll we'll see that what happens is it threatens, like it, it alienates her initial fan base. Is sure the way that she is perceived and it's also like half of it is the way that her fan base perceives her and the other half of it is the way that the industry perceives her and how everybody can can use her as a conduit or a utility yeah definitely well i guess in thinking about that right now the one thing that i would say though is i don't really i don't think for her it's a matter of taking agency of her body or anything just because of the fact that afterwards right she does have that sort of breakdown scene where you know she's she's she gets back in the car after it happens and she's playing it cool and then you know i forget what but there's it's one of those like instances where something sort of small happens and then it begets this you know huge outpouring of emotions i will get to it in a second here but um but yeah you know and i don't think that I think to show that scene, you know, she even says as she's yelling there, like, of course I didn't want to do it or something like that. So, yeah, I don't know. That's that's fair. That's fair. So from there, we do actually, you know, get the scene. And uh, it's 
you know, it's kind of in, I don't know if interesting is the right word. I don't know what the right word is, right? But <laughs> the fact that this is, anim- first of all, it's animated. And second of all, it's simulated even within the context of the story does not lessen how uncomfortable it is. It's, 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 it's a very, very difficult scene to watch. And there's even, I think it's the fact that they very clearly reference like the the actors that sort of know what they're doing, right? There's even like the guy who is doing the physical assaulting on Mima and like in between takes, he yeah. like whispers into her ear and like says like, I'm so sorry for having to do this, right? <laughs> well, yeah, because like one of the other things is that it's also like we've seen this very um, grounded anime for the last like, let's say 20 minutes. And when sure. we get to this scene, it is very hypersexualized. Like yeah. the color palette completely shifts and changes. And finally we're seeing like we've never seen Mima as being like busty or like very sexual. But in this mm-hmm. scene, we we do. And and that's of course, you know, part of the interpretation that's going on here. And like you're saying though, it's so funny because we we get to that point where he's like about you know, he's about to rip her her clothes off of her and they're like, cut and he just holds. He doesn't move. And he's like hovering above her. He's like, I'm really sorry about this. Um, <laughs> and she's like, no, it's cool. It's cool. I know we're acting. It's cool. It's cool. But while this is going on, she's also seeing yes, that creepy guard, her mm-hmm. her creepy fan that, that was uh, stalking her. And I think it's also one of these things, too, where like so often when we're in the middle of something, right? You don't have that time to stop and think about it. Uh, but Ryan, I believe you've referenced uh, before as uh, the sobering trip to the bathroom, right? I guess uh, that's kind of her her brief moment, right? It's where you sort of stop and it's like, oh, shit, like this is really like we're really doing this, you know? And so um, I think that we right, do also right. start to see a little bit of that emotion creep up on her for the first time because she's done such a good job of just acting like it doesn't bother her that we do start to see that one little crack there for a moment when she's allowed to feel it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I, I've always really appreciated anime for, for being able to uh, give us these grounded, um, you know, real life experiences within the context of these hyper real uh, fantastical worlds that we're living in, right? Whether it be uh, Akira, like we talked about, or Attack on Titan, or whatever, you know, like any. And here in Perfect Blue is a good example, you know, like even her stalker, the way he's drawn and, and the way the art is portrayed and so forth, it's all, you know, his eye is kind of shifted almost like a sloth from the Goonies kind of way, mm-hmm. a little bit, um, you know, salivating from the mouth. Everything is very, um, uh, you know, hyper real and extreme and kind of pushed to its boundaries. But yet, um, you know, here we are with her in this moment and it's very real and very raw and very touching. And, um, and it kind of snaps us back out of that, uh, you know, and, and, and like you were talking about it, I mean, the, the whole picture kind of starts with that, that Voltron, uh, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, you know, kind of fantastical thing. And so it's mm-hmm. we we start there and then slowly but surely we start to deteriorate out of the the sham and out of the, you know, the uh, the pop star thing. And and uh, by the time you get here, it's um, you know, we haven't even talked about the fact, uh, you know, fact that this has inspired a couple of Aronofsky's films. And I thought that was. Yep. 
Fa- fairly appropriate because uh, I, I didn't realize how dark this was going to be when I watched it. I mean, yeah, I knew it, it was going to be like a uh, bit of a thriller, you know, who done it, murder mystery, whatever. But I didn't know it was going to be covering such dark uh, topics like this. But, uh, you know, knowing going into this that this was an inspiration for a couple of uh, Aronofsky's films, I should have should have known better. Because <laughs> this was dark as fuck. <laughs> yeah, or at least what, it gets that way for a bit. Because after yeah. this, she goes and does the, uh, you know, the the nude photo shoot of sorts. Which I, you know, I kind of likened this to, you know, uh, ninety seven, ninety eight, ninety nine. Uh, you know, I'm thinking Maxim Magazine. I'm thinking Aguilera. I'm thinking Britney Spears. Oh. I'm thinking. Oh. The, you thought uh, wrong, sir. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I stand corrected. I was just thinking, you know, the the sexualization of female pop stars around this era. Oh no, uh, I'm just out talking about her Club. her photo shoot. That that I mean, if if I had seen Volva in Maxim, sir, it would have been very <laughs> well, no, no, different. No, but I I think what he's trying to say is that you know this yeah. is this is of that time, and so it ends up being a sort of commentary of sorts on a commentary you know, on the sexualization of female pop stars yeah, coming yeah. out of their childhood, embracing their sexuality, but then having to go to an extreme and so sure. forth. Um, you know, and and also the dawn of the internet, you know, and and the exploitation that provided in a way that before you'd have to go down and get a magazine uh, and bring it back to your house. And then all of a sudden, you know, uh, not much longer after this, it was also, you know, right at your fingertips. I mean, it's everything as old as new again, right? It's the 70s exploitation of of those old skin magazines um, Mm. brought back, right? Like there, there were famous people that were in Playboy and Penthouse back in the day. Sure, sure. And now this is the resurgence of that. And I would say today we are back at that point, right? A Kardashian's not a Kardashian unless you've seen her, um, having sex. So here we are. Well, even (laughs) just the, the backlash that, um, the backlash that Billie Eilish has given the press and media for trying to sexualize her coming out of her teens and, uh, and the, the lengths that she's gone to cover herself and, and, you know, portray a certain level of modesty intentionally so and she's you know spoken out about that like you know don't try to fucking sexualize me like i'm a kid you fucking weirdo yeah you know what i mean like exactly so, i mean it, it's weird too because it's two sides of the same coin it's like you're trying to sexualize me or you're trying to tell me not to be sexual like just sure. maybe leave me with my own autonomy you know right right yeah. Yeah, because and the thing is, I think that it's like, you know, when we're talking about these types of, you know, teen idols and stuff like these are developmental years, you know. And so Mm -hmm. the difference between a 12 year old girl and a 17 year old girl is night and day. But as that 12 year old girl gets closer and closer to 17, if they found a way to be profitable off her 12 year old image, they need to try to hold that as much as possible, you know. And so I think what happens. Yeah, and so I think what happens is it only exacerbates the situation because they're being held back, right? It's like, you know, what's the best way to get your teenager to act out, right? Like, just ban them from doing everything, tell them they can't go see anyone, right? And just watch them do everything where, as you know, if you give them a little bit of leeway in a responsible sort of way, um, you know, you don't get those reactions. So I think it's one of these things where it's just these girls are being held back for so long and so long and so long that by the time they do that, it's like, they should have been starting down that road a few years ago. And so now they have to compensate and make up for a lot of ground in a short amount of time. And so that's why seemingly overnight, these girls go from being, you know, preteens to over-sexualized late teens, early twenties. Yeah. I just thought this film did a a pretty tremendous job of 
portraying the dance or that fine line between uh, any any celebrity, really, or any pop star of any kind, um, you know, taking uh, possession of their own image and the way that's portrayed. And then the other side of that, which is the people trying to exploit that and take advantage of that and push them into something. And so, um, and then, you know, everyone surrounding them in that dance. So I just thought it was really interesting. And so, uh, and where they, and where they take that and, and then like, take what you're thinking here and then take the idea of the male gaze and see where they go with this, with the kills is so interesting. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. True. Yeah. So so let's jump back to the narrative here. So after she does the initial uh, rape scene, she returns home. Oh, it's the it's the fish that are dying. She gets home and like all of her fish yeah. had immediately died, which, you know, I, I guess we'd have to assume that like me mania or someone else, you know, must have killed them or something. Um, and then, no, I, you know, she starts falling. Actually, was that What'd she think? had she was neglecting her her regular life as a person mm. and and that that the fish were part of that. That's actually much stronger. Yeah, I like that. That she sort of, yeah, she got so obsessed with her pursuit of, you know, fame and acting and whatnot that she just literally completely forgot and starved yeah, her fish. I, that was my And then that's when it. she has that re- that breakdown because she realizes like, oh shit, like I've, yeah. like I did this to the fish the same way that like I did this to myself. You know, these are all yeah, the results of my actions and decision having, making. Yeah, hence her having that while she's floating in water. Yeah, and then we do start to see the reflection of herself that appears that represents huh. you know the her her innocent version and and the uh pop star the cham version if you will yep. of her and other, we see where she immediately actually road. yeah yeah now we see where she actually chastises her i do have a clip of that as well real quick that i want to play for our audience see didn't i tell you you didn't believe me <gasps> you were better off as a pop idol i was right huh hey Mima, are you listening Stop all this nonsense! Please tell me who you are! Who, me? I am a pop idol. And then, again, this is something that's being established that we're going to see start to come up over and over, where we see her talking to her old self and the person that she used to be. And in the next scene... So now, so on top of that, now we've got these murders that are starting to happen, right? And in the next scene, we see this happen to the screenwriter. So the screenwriter arrives to work, he gets in an elevator, and by the time those elevator doors open back up, he will be stabbed to shit with his eyeballs gouged out and a bunch of blood going everywhere. We're still not exactly sure who the culprit is, but we're starting to maybe have some ideas. Maybe it's this me mania guy. Who's to say, right? And from mm-hmm. there... To what you guys brought up earlier, that's when she makes, you know, yet another very bad decision that takes her yet further down that line where she agrees to do a photo shoot with a photographer who is very much known for getting people to do nudes. And, uh, you know, any any idea we might have thought that, you know, oh, she's not going to do that to herself or she's going to resist like, nope. She just plays into it, you know, very quickly. And what's interesting is that the director chooses to contrast this by intercutting it with a cham performance where it's just the two of them and i believe uh, if i remember correctly too they're also singing a song basically about choosing modesty and and not over sexualizing themselves yeah, it's, it's about like wearing blue jeans versus having to wear very very um formal attire while she's getting nude and you don't and oddly you don't even see her posing nude you see her nude photos after the photo shoot. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. And then that's when we sort of get what is the first of several record scratch moments. And hmm. uh, that's when basically her projection, uh, Mima's that is, uh, yeah. actually takes the stage at the Cham performance and addresses yeah. the audience, right? Um, so, Ryan, did you, uh, in terms of, like, the narrative or what exactly was going on there, did you have any ideas as to what that was? Like, do you well, think, like, that somehow that was, like, a Tyler Durden thing where it's actually her? Is it just her imagining things? Where'd you fall on that? With the with the ghost taking over? Yeah. Dude, I had no idea what the fuck was going <laughs> on at this one. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, I thought I just kind of assumed, like, that was representing her her lost innocence, you know, and uh, yeah. it was kind of um, you know, taking on a a life of its own in a way, you know, and, and sure. the ghost of that. But yeah. I, I didn't really know. I, I didn't see it taking it to the extreme that we get by the end. Um, yeah, and no, I, I don't think anybody could. Looking back on it, so we're gonna have to put a pin in this because I don't want to skip too far <laughs> ahead. But okay. no, for real, like because I. Like looking back on it now, and you and you asking me this, I have to still wonder. Like, is that is she was she in fact imagining that, or was that the killer replicant that we end up you know getting the reveal of at the end in some way, shape, or form? No, it couldn't be right so, because like we see, yeah, it's a little piece of the puzzle, Eddie. What do you think? If if I'm, am I allowed to spoil it at this point? Yes. Yeah. So let's go ahead and let's kind of, yeah. Cause the I think idea, we're close to an hour into okay. this discussion. Yeah, so we the can idea start. is that Rumi has been posing as her right. and saying that the girl who's going and doing these salacious things is a different Mima. Rumi has been telling this crazed fan what I want you to do. So yeah. the, the crazed fan is at that appearance and, and Rumi told that crazed fan, go to this appearance, go to this show, I will be there. And this is his um, dementia. This is him looking at the stage and and seeing her there when she really isn't ah, there. Ah, okay. Got it. Well, well no. In so, my but, mind. But the, in my mind. I was going to say, this is what's interesting because like, that, and that's why I brought up this piece specifically because when I was trying to interpret it, I came up with like at least three different ideas that like all could have worked. And that's why I was just wondering mm -hmm. if you did. So, because on the, on the one hand I was thinking uh, to your point, I thought I had maybe had more to do with Rumi because by the time we get to that final sequence where yeah. uh room, where Rumi's chasing Mima, whenever we see Rumi looking at herself, she, she is Mima. She's the younger Mima, right? Yeah. So yeah. there could be that sort of illusion, right? Where this Mima, oh, that's the course. younger one yes. is actually Rumi, right? And I so mean, all the that. way up until the hospital at the end, too. So, yeah. yeah. Or I thought that also it could be maybe like this is the moment where her mind snaps and her psychosis really begins. Right. Because it's yeah. right after the nude photo right. shoot. So thematically, it would make sense that that would break her. And then again, it's just this like record scratch, like. Oh, that 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 can't be a thing. That's a figment of her imagination, right? Which is and, telling us that she's officially sort of starting to go crazy. And the beautiful thing about this is that this is something that could only really work as well as it does uh, as an anime. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Where you can sort of you know fuck with the different uh, visuals and and time elements and whatnot, mm -hmm. and and also because I also think you know 
we sort of, I think what gets overlooked in the viewing experience is the expectations that we as an audience bring into something. Yeah. I tell Ryan all the time, like famously, like I refuse to watch trailers anymore because a couple years I noticed that there was a direct correlation between my excitement level for a movie and the disappointment that I walked out of the theater with, right? Have you ever seen Event Horizon? I have many times, actually, yes. Have you ever seen Dark City? I have, also many times. Okay. Famously, Dark City, the first two and a half to, to five minutes of it, they just describe for you what the movie's all about. They spoil what the twist is in the movie, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. I think that that trailers are doing that now, right? Yeah. And it really fucking sucks. Um, for, mm-hmm. for, for, it's stupid, but for Butt Boy... Uh, I, <laughs> <laughs> let's get serious for a minute talk about but i showed on. it on my live stream and for the first 10 minutes of it it's a cold open you have no idea what's going on you don't know what the title of the movie is you have no idea what and it is shot dead seriously as a, a, a neo-noir right <laughs> and so i'm showing this on my live stream i tell no one what it is imagine watching for for your listeners from dusk till dawn and no one told you <laughs> vampires are involved right <laughs> by the way i would have loved that i actually I maintain did that, that like for my tarantino wife. intentionally wanted to like mm-hmm. surprise slash scare people and came to the conclusion that the only way to so, do that would be to completely misdirect them for half a film yeah, so my wife is but a then screenwriter. But how do you market that? And, and she was, yeah. So my wife is a screenwriter, and she was very sheltered growing up. So she never saw From Dusk Till Dawn. She never saw Audition. She never saw a lot of these films. So I, I was able to just say, like, okay, let's watch this. I'm not going to tell you what it is. You can just experience it the way that the person who made the film intended it, including Dark City. I cut that entire explanation out from the, mm. the, the video. And God damn it, you're, you're so right with the way that these trailers just ruin the film. They ruin the experience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and that's, why, uh, that's why I loved what Spielberg started doing. I want to say it was with Minority Report, War yes. of the Worlds, like that earlier yep. mid-2000s where he's Minority like, Report, all my tra- 100%. Yeah, all my trailers are only going to feature content from the first 20% of the film. Or yes. the first act or whatever it was. So like, smart. Hard and fast God, I rule. wish they would go back to that. Right? Uh, so good, dude. So good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, and then, you know, Ryan, to your point earlier, you had name-dropped Darren Aronofsky and the uh, influence that this film had on him or didn't. I know there's some controversy, so we can talk about that. So, uh, you know, after she does the... Uh, photo shoot she goes home and we get the infamous requiem shot the the shower scene right where it's a you know it's a it's a sort of ceiling shot looking down at her very symmetric and then we get the under the water the shot where you know she's crouched with her knees and then she screams right now Mm -hmm. apparently i'm sure you guys have read this too and, and eddie maybe you have more insight on this apparently aronofsky bought the rights to this movie just so he could film that one shot and and i'm really trying to 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 understand like many films have so, have referenced other shots in the past. Like, yeah. So why Aronofsky, couldn't that have just been like a knowing, loving reference? And why did he have yeah. to buy the rights? Well, he wanted to remake this. He wanted to remake this as a live action, and it never worked out. But hmm. he he did utilize that shot specifically in Requiem for a Dream. And then if you watch Black Swan, there's a 
a lot of this that is yeah. referenced in Black Swan. So, I mean... With a lot of the reflections and, and yep. a lot of the themes that he did. And even, you know, even down to, like, you know, the... I think that uh, the Aaron, the Aaron girl that ends up being the detective mm-hmm. uh, in this film, you know, mm-hmm. is very much like the um, the successful ballerina that Natalie Portman's trying to emulate. And I mean, exactly, yeah. That's why it was so weird when I read that he he she's trying he, he being Aronofsky is trying to say that like Perfect Blue wasn't that much of an influence on the film because it's like, bro, <laughs> did you do, no. do you just not know that I this think, film like was this subconscious? What the no, hell? There's I a lot he, of similarities. Like I said, I think he bought the rights to it because he wanted to remake it, and and there there were. I wish I could find a good reference for this, but there are people that were working around him back in the day that said he wanted to remake this as a live action. It just never worked out. And Mm. that is why he purchased the rights for it. Interesting. Yeah. And then so from there, you know, basically those the nudes that she took get published and me mania scrambles around town trying to buy up all the copies so that, you know, but obviously that's going to be very much in vain. And, you know, that's when we see, again, the the Mima projection where he basically has all these posters up on the walls of her and they all start coming alive and talking to her and thanking him for being the one that's, you know, supposed to protect her. And so, you know. Mima is not the only character that is experiencing some level of uh, psychosis. But the mm-hmm. interesting thing is that, and and you guys can let me know if I'm right or wrong on this, but I guess by the end of it, it's not that she was strictly a mental projection. It's that she was Rumi, and Rumi was talking to me, Mania. And, so and Rumi, was, Rumi was the one that set up uh, Mima's room. And was mm-hmm. emailing him and telling him what to do, saying, I'm the real Mima. The Mima that you see on TV is not yeah. the real me. And it's funny because this, this guy also, like, sadly enough, reminds me of the guy that, that was in love with Bjork and tried to send the bomb in the mail to, to Bjork. That's I right. I totally that. forgot about yeah. that. I'm not familiar with that story. It sucks. Uh, you don't need to look <laughs> It's basically what it. you think it would be, right? It ends up the worst way possible, like you could imagine. But I think that that, that might have been a little bit of the inspiration here. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, and I do have uh, one last clip that I want to play of that scene real quick here. I'll always be with you and I'll never change. Not a bit, but I have a problem. It's that imposter. She keeps getting in my way. I don't know what to do. You're the only one I can depend on. And so by now, we've obviously got a lot going on. I mean, we've introduced the notion of the craved fan as stalker. Uh, You know, we've sort of, even though the Rumi reveal hasn't really come to light yet, we've started to set the stage with some of those. We've got the serial killings going on. We've got Cham's success. We've got Mima trying to become an actress, dealing with all of the different emotions at play with all of this stuff. And I mean, again, I think this movie's like 82 minutes long or something. Like it's crazy how much they jam back into this shit, dude. Well, Um, and and one thing we haven't really talked about too much as well, that's going on on top of all of that is, you know, the the fact that she's in a TV show um, and trying to transition from pop star to actress, they keep pulling out. Uh, so you'll be in a scene, or at least maybe it just fooled me, but, uh, you know, the, you'll be in a scene with the person, with your your actress uh, and, you know, people going on. And then all of a sudden you pull out and it's just 
the director and producers watching that happen on the monitor. So what's happening yeah. to Mima is parallel running parallel to her character in this detective crime procedural procedural. Yep. So they'll be talking about the rape and this and that. I know there was one scene in particular where they're watching her go crazy or something. And uh, the detective is like, that poor girl doesn't even know she's, you know, losing her mind and this and that. And I'm like, Oh, this is all in her head. And then, it turns out then it's like cut and I'm like, oh, OK, that's on the show. And so, that, you know, <laughs> in the context of every all the other batshit crazy nonsense that's going on, it's also, uh, you know, playing with reality. And, and so you don't ever really a, know what's what. Brilliant way to because they are yes. they're referring to her by her real name and her character's name. And she's referring right. to the characters as the characters names or by their real name and confusing that. So we're I mean. This is a very David Lynch inspired situation. Yeah. I mean, sure, this is Mulholland sure. Drive, right? This Absolutely. Is like, right, right. Who am I? And I think that's the larger part of this is identity, right? Is is we're talking about who are you? What's your identity? And how much of it do you actually own as the individual? And how much of your identity is gone when you release it to the public. And then once the public takes it, they can mold it, they can twist it, they can shape it, and they can make Mima's room, manipulate other people, and then use that to destroy you. It's and this was before fucking crazy. Fucking, this is before fucking <laughs> social media. Yeah. But <laughs> what do I know? I'm a dumb guy who... Seven. What do I know? I'm a dumb guy who talks about butt boy. So... Yeah, right. <laughs> you know. Well... Let, yeah. Let's call it, we should call it uh, Monjour Derriere. I think we should. <laughs> we should juice, yeah. yeah, we should juice, juice it up, up a little bit. bit. Absolutely. Yeah, it's actually yeah. a really yeah. good movie. Anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, and it's interesting, Eddie, that you mentioned that the actual manga doesn't have the movie within the movie because no. that must be why they introduced it into the film is just to further play with the whole concept of what's real and what's not, you know? Well, no, because the, already. The director- the director saw the manga and he's like, I'm going to, I'm going to do way more than this with it. He was way more ambitious. And the guy who made the manga was like, dude, your ideas are better than my shit. Go for it. All I want is for (laughs) you to have a B tier pop star and a stalker fan that, that, that uh, tries to fuck with her and everything else you can do. That was literally it. That was all the notes that he took from the original writer. (laughs) So you're saying that he was not Stephen King. Understood. (laughs) (laughs) No, he's more of a Kubrick than a King. (laughs) Yeah, well, and then, you know, and and it's right about here. So, again, you know, I think we're really starting to see a lot of the lines being blurred. We're not sure what's TV show. We're not sure what's real. We're not sure what's in her head and vice versa. And even down to the next scene, you know, that's where we start to get the reveals, you know, and we start to see like, oh, wow, this Mima chick's actually crazy fucked up. And, you know, I think where we really get that, if we didn't already, is the uh, the scene where the photographer gets murdered. You know, yeah. the the infamous scene uh, in front of the uh, those old RGB bulbs, which, oh, God, uh, again, so unfortunately, beautiful. all three of us are old enough to remember. But, uh, <laughs> I, I love this scene. This is probably the best scene. It's in the amazing movie for me. The, the the her mounting the photographer her quote unquote mounting the photographer and stabbing him to death with this ice pick or screwdriver while he's watching this slideshow of the nudes that he took of her is so brilliant like 
God Absolutely. damn it. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm a stupid <laughs> guy. I don't know about like composition or that kind of stuff. <laughs> but I, I just see this shit and I'm like, God damn. It, it yeah, well, and the way and the way that they have this sort of you know the balletic presentation with you know the sort of eerie music and everything else comes down and um, you know like you're just hearing certain sound effects right and it's it's a very it's a very artistic scene but it also hits home you've got cool visuals you've got the violence but then it's also you know somewhat justified if if such a thing can be. And, and yeah, like anytime something happens in this film, it's not just that thing happening, right? It's the it's the culmination of several different moments kind of coming together. Those, to your point earlier, those fork in the road decisions, you know, finally those, starting to come to a head. All those layers of subtext that are joining yeah, together. Definitely. And it's funny, it's interesting that you brought up Mulholland Drive because in many ways this is Mulholland Drive. <laughs> oh, I mean, even yeah. down to, you know, after the, the, the motivations for, you know, and, and the fact that it's, you know, the, this storyline is all in the person's head and it's motivated by, you know, having to justify the decisions that you made mm-hmm. or try to take failures and convince yourself their successes. And the and, desire and just for so many of those fame similar and embodying themes. that desire for fame as a separate person from yourself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And and it's kind of because what Mole and Drive came out somewhere between 99 and 01, mm-hmm. probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, kind of right on the heels of each other, but yeah. obviously too close. Also, obviously too close to be inspired by someone. I doubt very much David Lynch reads no. uh, anime. No. I feel very confident Lynch. in saying that. Lynch had nothing to do <laughs> with this. Don't worry about that. <laughs> um, and then I know it took him several several years to to find the funding because Mulholland Drive was a failed TV show, if I remember correctly. Yep. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So, um, just kind of interesting to see the parallels there. Kind of like when uh, Volcano and Dante's Peak came out at the same time. Very similar. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and so that's when, uh, you know, again, sort of we're getting more and more reveals here. And we see Mima wake up in bed after the murder, and she has no recollection of the murder. And that's where, you know, we get the reveal that it's, oh, okay, this this woman has multiple personalities. And the lead actress that was the quote-unquote lead actress on the detective show is actually a real life to either detective or doctor who's trying to uh you know who's working the case to understand what happened and it's also really interesting where um I, I thought this was an interesting decision and 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 Eddie I'm sure you have an opinion on it Ryan I'd like to see yours as well and that's so you know we get this whole reveal and then the show is over they're done filming they have the rap party and Mima's left alone, and, you know, Mimania, who is her, you know, quote-unquote self-appointed protector, yeah. uh, is, you know, going to kill her, you know, to, you know, sort of exercise the evil version yeah. of it, right? Because, you know, he she's supposed to be pure. And then when the time comes, he actually sexually assaults her. And then instead yeah. of, you know, just killing her or whatever, like, he's going to try to rape her too. So it's like... That feels like there's a very pointed uh, point <laughs> being Not made. Not only rape her, like so. So clearly, like Rumi has been sending emails to this guy, and that's why he's saying the other version of you is messaging me and telling me that you're not really you. Right? Yeah. And then not only going to kill her and rape her, but on the stage where she filmed her first scene of oh, wow. being raped in, in the strip yeah. club, right? And, and and that 
that culmination, like that that perfect like end to end, where he has become the thing that that he hates and detests the most, which is the character in that movie that that ruined or tarnished his uh, his idea of what she was, right? And yeah. but in mm-hmm. in this instance, though, she finally starts like she takes some agency and fucks him up, <laughs> yeah. which I goddamn love. <laughs> finally. So that that's that's my take. <laughs> yeah, Ryan, any any anything to add to that? No, no, I think that pretty much sums it up. Yeah, I think I think that for me, I think that what the film was trying to do is it was trying to remind you that this guy is not a hero, right? Because oh, no. for sure. most of the right. film, it's like you know, again, the self-appointed protector of her image. You're protecting me, blah blah yeah. blah, this and that. And I think it's the film's way of being like, whoa, 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 guys, don't forget, this is an insane, mentally disturbed stalker. This is not a yeah. good guy. He's not the protector that he wants to be. At the end of the day, when push comes to shove, he's just as levicious and just as evil as any of these other guys. And he's just another guy. Right? And well, you know, he's, we get shots of him at his computer station, you know, with all the stalker images of her yeah. all over the walls. And I mean, uh, you know, even the way he's drawn again, going back to my original point with, yeah. the, you know, um, uh, drool coming out of his mouth and him kind of hunched over. He looks like a villain from start to well, finish. I mean, sure, but that could also be like a mask thing, right? Like he's the disfigured guy that we at first think is going to yeah, be evil. I guess. But, oh, look, he's actually good, but right? Like under the skin and all these things that kind of play with that character. But he's yet another representative of the male gaze. So you have the screenwriter yeah. who writes the female as being like, okay, I'm using you to advance the story by raping you in the story. You've got the... the uh, the photographer who's like, okay, well, I mean, we care about you as a person, but let's see your pussy. And then <laughs> all of those people get brutally, markedly their eyes gouged out, like literally yeah. a, a repudiation and destruction of the male gaze. And then finally, this guy who tries to rape her just gets destroyed. Like, yeah. it's so funny because we, we see this movie, th- this movie, this anime from the perspective of the male gaze. And it's literally objectifying her and 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 uh, using her as an object for the furthering of the plot without any con- concern for her agency. When in reality, this whole movie has been about her agency and about who she is and who she is trying to be. So and finally, okay. yeah, this last absolutely. stalker is destroyed. Uh, well, let's talk about well, that, Eddie. Because until we get to the last last stalkers. <laughs> Speaking of her agency, quite literally her agency. <laughs> <you> um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> let's segue into the last scene because uh, I'm interested in your take on this because I'm 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 going down this road with you and I really love your stance on this. Uh, okay. Everything you say is substantiated. Um, but then my question to you is: Then how does the Rumi twist? go in with this in the well, sense of if this whole thing is is held against the the reflection so, of the male gaze and how that you know uh, is is controlling yeah. this woman and all of that you know then it turns it on its ear and mm-hmm. uh and now we find out a woman has been behind a lot of these things and puppeteering okay. the, the so you know the the attacks I'll, on these men is a take i'll let you thoughts? guys yeah. describe what's happening and then i'll, I'll give you my theory on it and, and okay. Can, okay. Yeah. Let me, let, let me let me break words, it down real quick. Real quick, which is internalized misogyny. Okay. <laughs> go okay. go ahead, Jason. Take it All away. Right. Yeah. So basically, you know, it's the final scene. It's the craziest of a crazy film. 
and Rumi basically finds Mima, takes her home, except it's not home. It's actually her place. Uh, Rumi, uh, not Rumi, Mima goes to call Totokoro, uh, and he's dead right next to me, Mania. So obviously someone has killed him in the rap party where he, he but, died. But the fish um, are alive. And- the fish are alive. That's what she notices first. And she's like, fuck, something's wrong. Yeah, wait. Interesting. Uh, I missed that detail. That's a good one, though. I'm glad you pointed that out. She's a better homemaker um, than Mima, right? More attentive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then and and that's when she and that's when basically Mima sees herself in this new red dress, except it's not her oh. in this sort of tall mirror. It's Rumi, who is actually, you know, rather uh, has squeezed herself into a dress that's too small. Um, and, you know, with. I'll, I'll save the analysis for a minute. Uh, but basically what happens is she sort of believes, she talks about being the sort of real pure Rumi. And then she ends up sort of chasing her through the streets, chasing after Mima, who's just trying to escape. Uh, there's the reveal that, you know, she's been reading the diary entries like we like we mentioned. Well, she hasn't been writing them physically. She's been feeding to me mania the words that she should write as the quote unquote Real Mima. They take chase through the city, where again we sort of go back and forth between seeing a very young, attractive Mima in this pretty red dress versus Rumi in the same red dress, very much squeezed in. And at one point, they, you know, run into an alley. Mima's being backed into it, and she grabs Rumi's wig. And throws it in the middle of the street, which destroys the illusion for Rumi and sends her into a sort of mania where she goes to get the wig, but it's on the other side of like a shattered window. So when she reaches over to get it, uh, again, because she's so desperate to live into this fantasy, uh, she basically like gores her entire stomach open yeah. and then like wanders off into the middle of the street. We do get another awesome shot where she's about to get hit by a truck and when, you know, we see her perspective looking at the headlights and to her, they look like stage lights. Yep. And, you know, she puts her hand in the air like this sort of grand finale, very much encapsulating the warped mentality that Rumi is in. But Mima is able to run out, push her aside, save her. And, you know, we get a final sequence of Mima visiting Rumi in a mental hospital. And, and again, you know, in keeping with the whole taking agency, you know, we'll describe that last shot here in a moment. Mm-hmm. But... Eddie, with that out of the way, give us your interpretation, my man. Okay, so you've got the weird, like, Peter Pan, her floating and flitting about the rooftops, trying to, to trying to chase Mima, Rumi, by the way. And then you've also got the, um, the narcissist, right, which is her leaning over the broken window and seeing her reflection in all of the little pieces of the glass from the window. I Rumi. loved that. When, when she gores herself. It's so beautiful. And then, yeah, like you said, and, and I love the way that you pointed that out, which is like earlier there was a, uh, a post-it note that was posted in the elevator that Mima saw, which was there was a hit and run that happened in front of her building. And now we see uh, Rumi is about to get hit and run potentially, but but staring at the headlights of this semi that's bearing down on her, you know, this inevitability. And she just sees it as stage lights. It's like, now I've hit my moment. Now I'm the celebrity, right? Yeah. Um, j- just my, my notes on what you just summarized. Um, yeah, yeah. So what I, what I think it is, for me, what I took from it is you've got two different ideals of female that are, comparing, contrasting, and arguing with each other. And as a white male, 
uh, I'm the perfect person to get into this with other white males. Uh, <laughs> right. I thought three about wh- that. Three white males Dude. all know exactly what's going on. I We're going to give you I thought about that We are that going earlier. to mansplain the shit out of some things no, right now. Stand no, by. No, yeah. you know what? I'll, I'll tell you right now. It's not about mansplaining. It's about trying. No, no, and, it's and analysis. if you have female listeners, please, please weigh in and tell, tell me uh, three Three two three four the axe. That's my phone number. Just give me a call. <laughs> I'll talk to you. Really? Um, no. What, what I see is you've got this juxtaposition of the 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 two different ideals. Like there's a woman who's trying to go out and do her own thing, right? And then the other the other woman, Rumi, is is holding her down in it a little bit. But but they both envy each other, right? And mm-hmm. I think that it's a a toxic. Uh, uh, femininity almost it's an internalized misogyny where it's like you know what mima you were supposed to be this clean pure thing that i was curating and i was in control of and i wanted you to go this one direction you wanted to go your own direction and you know what you fucked up you made mistakes maybe potentially and you did these rape scenes and nude photography but you know what that's actually really about you finding you like if that's what you're trying to do go for it who am i to control you and do this and then she uses that she harnesses that to to weaponize masculinity against her and to try to get this fucking crazy stalker piece of shit to to attack her like to 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 take the worst parts of of masculinity and turn it against her uh, then you've got the the narcissist, uh, uh, which, God damn it, I love that scene, which is like, it's not even about you in the end. You know what? It's all actually really about me. Your celebrity, your being a star is really what I can make you and what I can get from you. And that poisoned her mind to to the point of destruction. Like she, she was going to stand in front of a fucking car and get ran over. <laughs> She was insane as hell, yeah. and she ends up where she ends up. Anyhow, I'll, that's yeah. as much as I've got no. off the top of my head. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, that's all really strong. And I think that, you know, too, in addition to being specifically gender targeted, I do think that there's a lot of commentary about fame. Oh, and yeah. specifically about the trappings and the allure and both, you know, the the light and dark of it. You know, the romantic appeal, but also... You know, very much it's it's almost a cautionary tale, the same as like any sort of drug story that you hear, right? It's like it always starts off everything's super fun and everything's great, and then mm-hmm. it's just you know a series of you know downward spiral decisions that ultimately you know end up end up with us being at bottom and you know losing everything, and then um, you know how do how do we respond by that from the, or to that rather? Yeah, it's funny. Uh, you, uh, a good point. It's funny you bring that up. I, I actually I watched. Get back the documentary about the Beatles and this movie mm. back to back, and Whoa. it was like a total mind fuck. <laughs> it put the whole thing all out of perspective. With Brian Epstein dying and the Beatles coming apart, mm. and then everyone going off on their solo careers, and uh, you know, uh, Paul McCartney got naked in the magazine that one time. That's cool. Uh, no, not really, but still, yeah, no, no, no. it was a definitely a, a weird contrast of, uh, pop, pop celebrity and pop culture. And then, uh, you know, watching this and the dark side of that is like, Oh shit. Okay, cool. 
Yeah, definitely. But uh, yeah, no. I, going back to that though, it's just uh, I think that you know the the Rumi character is basically just showing that like fame fucked this woman up, or the pursuit of fame. You know, I think that it's very much. I I think that her arc and her trajectory and her character is very much the child starlet mom basically right oh, yeah. like had huge dreams of being a successful actress when they were younger they didn't pan out but they're just going to devote all of their resources to living vicariously through their child yeah. and it's kind of interest like it's such a bizarre concept right like i get the three i get the idea that like the three of us like could literally don't understand why someone would 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 could do that right like why would you get pleasure out of watching someone else be the thing that you couldn't become like to me when i think about that like that would only reinforce my own failures right to see my kids succeed in a way that i didn't or something like that and not in a healthy way not in like yeah. i'm gonna set you up for success in the ways that i wasn't but like hey i am lacking and i need you to do so that i can live through you to get that which i lack that's bizarre to me again that's that's also troubling because like 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 you're saying, do do you push your kid to succeed because of your failures, or like is seeing your kid succeed a, a mark of like you they can do better than you? I mean that's the American dream, right? Like that that yeah. should be your goal. But yeah, I mean, well, but you I, see I both you. of those, right? Because yeah. you also see, you know, you do like uh, like I think the default expectation and the default is you have parents that are supportive of their kids and do those things. But it's also not uncommon, even even maybe even those same people that support their kids, there may be an element of jealousy, right? Like of you course, you hear yeah. about how often when you know when when young men come of age and there's you know that whole thing with you know fathers and where do you draw that line and you know yeah. you're not taking care of me anymore and blah 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 like there's that whole adjustment that comes along with um you know uh, uh, with that whole relationship and so i think that you know there's a part of that that comes here too with just this whole you know mima and rumi dynamic i could see that i could totally see that yeah yeah and then we of course get the final sequence and eddie i think that if anything this is going to come around and sort of wrap things up to your point which is that ultimately it's a tale of at the end of the day her taking agency over herself and her body and her career and just her in totality right and we get the final scene where she goes and she sees rumi who by the way you know at this point mima's okay right like she came out of this like she got fucked up there for a minute but the last scene tells us that Mima's uh, going to be okay. Sort of. Well, okay. Sort maybe, of. maybe not, right? I mean... But in terms of, <laughs> in terms of like, she's not actively in a state of psychosis the way yeah. that she was through most of this yeah, movie. Yeah, no, she's, and, she's at least accepted that she is a duality. Well, yeah, well, and then there's the whole thing because, like, basically the nurses are talking shit about her as she's leaving and they're like, hey, isn't that that girl? Oh, yeah, that's the failed actress. Oh, wow, like... I didn't even know she was here. Maybe she's just like a figment of our imagination. And she kind of looks at herself in the mirror and she's like, no, I'm real. You know, and that's that's the very last line of dialogue we we hear. And I think if yeah. you just like if you think of that in terms of a screenplay, right, it's, in terms of like a page and a last line of dialogue, I think it's telling us that, like, again, she's going to be OK. She's managed to resolve this. But it yeah. sounds like maybe you might think otherwise. So, well, well you, you kind of mistranslated it a little bit. What, what the nurses are actually okay. saying is, uh, hey, there's her. That's that actress. I, that can't be her. Why would she be here? 
right? It's a little bit mm-hmm. like she's big time for being at that location. And then they're oh, okay. like, no, that's clearly not her. Then she gets into the car. And when she gets into the car, she can drop the veneer of being the normal person and be like, huh, I know who I am. Look into the to the rear view. And then we, we kick into the baller ass. One of my fucking favorite things with anime is how you have to end <laughs> it with the like yep. 80s, like metal, like you know what I mean? And, yeah, and 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 the songs at the beginning and the end all have to be like completely yes. different tones. Hundred percent. Right? Like one one is hardcore metal and the other is like a lovey dovey ballad. Yeah, you've got the lovey dovey ballad time. and then you've got Motley Crue. Like I fucking love yeah. it. <laughs> so um, no, I, and and I think that that's like she still is a duality, right? Like she has to go be the demure, like restrained, hidden person when she's in public, and then she goes and she's like, "No, I'm the fucking celebrity." I fucking know who I am. And and it, it is an acceptance of that duality, though, I think. Awesome. Well, that is perfect blue, guys. Uh, I, you know, this was a really, really interesting film. And, and I'm looking at the time. And I think that we probably talked for just about as long as we watched uh, this film. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> hey, I'll, I'll, always a good time. So we're going to go ahead, Eddie. Uh, this is your first time on our show. We like to finish up with a, a little feature called Three Adjectives. I'm going to have Ryan start. Uh, the thing about the thing about being at the end of three adjectives is sometimes the people up top can steal your adjectives. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know what? We're going to roll the dice. So, Ryan, why don't you kick us off? What you got? Uh, my first one is a uh, one of those cheater hyphenated things. Uh, I hyphenated terrifyingly beautiful. This is a beautiful film, but not in a beautiful way. Uh, <laughs> so uh, definitely, you know, sets you back a little bit and uh, makes you. Uh, feel uneasy, but in a uh, beautiful, wonderful way. The next one is surreal. It felt like a fever dream uh, watching this mm-hmm. thing. I never really was sure what was going on, but I was along for the ride. I loved every minute of it. Uh, and my last one is uh, appetizer because uh, this just made me want to watch more anime. And I'm nice. really mad at All myself right. for not uh, having gone down this road as much as I should have. I've seen... You know, some of the staples, but uh, man, damn it. I love this podcast for getting me to watch some of these. I mean, that's the whole reason we started this, right, Jason? This right. is like yep. uh, an excuse to watch these films. I mean, you and I put these this list together ourselves so that we could uh, have an excuse to finally once and for all force ourselves to watch these things. So uh, <laughs> this was a, a yeah. fantastic a fantastic Eddie experience. selfishly uh yeah a lot of these films are are those films that like Ryan and I would always have on like our Netflix queues nice. like I don't know, by the way did you get like Netflix back in the day when it was like DVD red envelope yep. Netflix yep I still did, have yeah, one did you uh, also have um, like all your 500 movies like and yeah you had to like delete five I've actually five more? got a DVD that's still in the red envelope right now <laughs> it's a uh, oh. begin uh, miniseries called time between dog and wolf Never heard of that one. Yeah, it's yeah. very good. Close. My wife brought it to our relationship, and uh, I don't know. One of those things I love. So <laughs> I'll, I I'll do. It. I'll do you one better. I actually have an active red envelope. Uh, here DVD we go. Netflix subscription. Here we go. Wow. Here comes get hip, it. Hipster Jason coming out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, supporting the physical media as I do. Look, all I'm saying, man, is uh, you know, there's a documentary. Uh, Los Angeles plays itself, and you can't get it anywhere except. Oh wait, you can. You can get it on dvd.netflix.com. It's awesome. <laughs> I'm telling you, man, you get all these movies like Papillon. I've seen so many great movies that I literally could not find anywhere else. Mm. Uh, and, you know, it's awesome. So 
Uh, the other thing, though, I will say it's not the only place that you can get it. The other place that you can get it. Ryan, where do you think I'm going to say right now? No What's idea. my other beloved platform? Uh, oh, the library. Cana- Canopy. Yes, yep. my beloved Canopy. Eddie, are you familiar with Canopy? No, I'm not. Yeah, see, no, not enough people are, and it's a travesty. So I will take this opportunity once again to plug Canopy. It's K-A-N-O-P-Y. And basically, this is an online streaming service mm-hmm. that you get access to with your library card. Oh, Any okay. library okay. card in U.S. will work. And if you don't have one like I didn't, you can go online and get one in literally 30 seconds, and they'll give you a digital number that you just link to your Canopy nice. account. Okay. And then I think you get like 10 free movies a month and they have like all the films we watch on here, dude, like a ton of Criterion. They have a ton of A24. You can go watch Under the Skin. You can watch Wages of Fear. Uh, you can watch Room, the uh, uh, the uh, Brie Larson movie that she won Best Actress for. And you can see little known documentaries like Los Angeles Plays Itself from 2003. Nice. So, uh, again, dude, if you don't have a, a library card, get one. Go to Canopy.com. And they even have, like, smart TV platforms and stuff. You just pull it up right there on your uh, Samsung and watch it right there. It's awesome. Very cool. Yeah. So, um, uh, Ryan, did we get to all three of yours, or do you owe us one more adjective? Yep. No, that was it. I had uh, Terrifyingly right. Beautiful. I had Surreal. I had Appetizer. Carry on. Ah, yes. Appetizer. Mr. Eddie, you're up. Three adjectives. What you got? Yeah, so... I kind of I have half of your hyphen it. I have beautiful. <laughs> I have uh, hideous, and I have introspective, for my three adjectives. Um, I think because it's it's really well, like it does showcase this this beauty of the idealized version. I mean it's I mean it's old school like Hitchcock, kind of the id, the super ego and the ego. Uh, going on here so you've got the beauty and you've got the hideousness of human nature but i think the introspective parts of it are the more interesting parts of it for me which, which is like the analysis of like what who are we really what motivates us to do what we do uh, and why and and how do we come out of that in in the end right um thankfully mm-hmm. for uh mima she she came out of it okay like she had a nice sports car she had some shades and uh she got to uh throw on some 80s uh power ballad when she drove the fuck away from the the <laughs> nut house with uh with her girl rumi getting shock treatment so i don't know if you guys ever listened to x japan but that reminded me of x japan yeah, yeah. yeah. i love that band so much <laughs> <laughs> i love it i love it Awesome. Awesome. Well, yeah. So uh, for my three adjectives, uh, the first I have is tight. You know, the one thing, you know, we talk all about all. Yeah, it's tight, yo. It's tight. It's an hour and hour and 21 minutes tight. It's (laughs) a tight script. Yeah, no. But I mean, just, you know, and Ryan, we've talked about this on the show before, just when it comes to, you know, pacing and the way that films move. Right. um, You know, it's something that a lot of people don't talk about that we try to call more attention to. And yeah, I mean, this film never lets you go. Right. It it keeps it choppy. And that also just that tightness plays into the whole notion of not really knowing what's going on. And then from there, not only is it tight, the thing that most surprised me about this film 
is how focused it is. You know, a film like this that's just so all that's so all over the place and you're jumping through different times and personalities and what's real and what's not. I mean, this film should be confusing. You know, it should be a film where it's kind of easy to get lost. And at no point did I feel lost. If I right. ever felt lost, mm-hmm. it was just for a brief moment. And it was because I was supposed to because the director was setting that up because yeah. he mm-hmm. led me to believe we were on a set. And now sure. all of a sudden we're not. So the fact that you could tell this type of story and be hugely sprawling and yet still keep it as focused as it is and have that direct through line that you never lose sight of was very, very impressive to me. And the third and final, it's a little more on the nose, is just hallucinogenic. You know, Mm -hmm. Uh, Ryan, you called it, I think, a Robitussin fever dream, and it definitely is. Uh, You know, this is a mix in NyQuil and DayQuil and then staying up for seven days. You you don't know what's going on. You're being pulled this way and that way. And just when you think you know what's going on, you don't. Um, But the fact that it does all of this and and does it in a way that never leaves you frustrated and it never leaves you – if it leaves you guessing, it's because it wants to leave you guessing. You know, it's never because you're lost. And that could just happen so easily in a film like this. And I think that's just as much as anything else that very much impressed me. So – with our three adjectives out of the way, we're going to go ahead and do our formal ratings. Now, Eddie, I'm going to let you kick this off, and I have mentioned to you, which also a good time to remind listeners, we may have some newer listeners that uh, have wondered for the last several episodes why Ryan gives a grade rating and I give a star rating. Eddie, I'll let you know that uh, when we first started this thing, I kept pushing Ryan for star ratings. And every single time I would ask him for a star rating, he would give me a grade rating very stubbornly. And so <laughs> after a few episodes, we just leaned into it. So now anybody gets to give whatever rating they want. And with that being said, Eddie, give us your formal rating and whatever that looks like for you. Okay. For, for, so uh, for me, it's going to be um, one out of five with, uh, and we'll count half, half uh, points. Uh, axes, mm-hmm. and I'm going to give it a 4.5 out of five axes. It's nice. uh, it's it's beautiful. It's really well constructed. It's very tight. I don't know if I can give it a perfect rating, um, be, because there are some some points of it that that, like you said, were um, maybe maybe a little bit more obtuse than they needed to be. Um, and the voice acting is phenomenal. Like whether you do the English or the Japanese dub and do subs or dubs, that's that's on you. But e- either way, it's very very well done. Uh, and and as far as storytelling goes, though, I think it's, I mean it it's it's up there in in one of the highest categories for me. So yeah, I'd say four four and a half out of five axes. Nice, awesome, awesome. Ryan, how about you? I'm giving this one an A minus for all the reasons ah, that he just said. I'm on gold. board with every single one of those things. Um, no notes. That is, uh, I, I mean, I think it's just very well constructed. It's not perfect. It's not the best version of this thing, but uh, but damn it, is it close. And it was super enjoyable. And it's an hour and 21 minutes. I mean, oh, they I take know. you for a fucking ride for an hour and 21 minutes. Like this... It's not bloated. There is no fat. This is Wagyu, yep. Wagyu beef, you know, premium content. <laughs> you just, every bite is edible, you know, uh, goes down smooth. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll actually push back on you a little bit and say that I think that this is the perfect version of Whoa! this. Whoa. Whoa. So once again, I'm going to be way too generous oh. and give Perfect Blue five stars out of five because God damn it, Ryan, as I've told you, 
it's all about the experience, right? Okay. That's and Eddie, that's kind of what I've come down okay. to, right? Because okay. initial, so in those first few episodes, I feel like I was being really harsh, right? And even my wife was like, "Oh, you've been kind of hard on these films." And then I was like, "You know what? We're gonna dissect these films, and certain things are gonna come up. And it, 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 how do I compare a Dead Alive to a <laughs> Harakiri? Right? Uh, like some some." artistic criterion film from 1946 like how can i compare that to gremlins or dead alive right yeah like obviously the criterion movie is going to be the better film and like the more deserving of respect when viewed through a certain lens but like is that to take away from dead alive are you telling me that if i give five stars to harakiri that means that dead alive has to be four and a half no bullshit dead alive is as good as a version of that type of movie as you're yeah. going to find yeah. it is the best version of that story and ergo is every bit deserving of five stars so that's kind of where i've come to it's like what is my experience yeah. dude you know to your guys's point i was in this every step of the way I, you know, I didn't want anybody bothering me. I was locked in. Uh, I was even like, you know, kind of disappointed that I had to take my notes because especially I don't know about you guys, but like I watched the Japanese version. So, uh, you know, I had to read. And sometimes sometimes when, you know, you've got the subtitles and you're taking detailed notes like there, you know, you just I have to pause it, you know, and I just I hated having to stop the experience just to take down these notes and I wanted to get right back to it. So, uh, you know, again, the fact that a film can have that effect on me. Five star experience for old Jason here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm with you. I get what you're saying. the The idea is how successful is it in tr- doing what it's trying to do, right? Uh, Dead mm-hmm. Alive is a hundred percent successful in what it's trying to do. So, so yeah, mm-hmm. totally. I get you. Absolutely. So. Yeah, this has been a really great conversation. Eddie, I really appreciate you coming and joining us here, man. You brought some uh, really, really fire observations to this. And I uh, really appreciate, you know, all the different observations. And it's been a fun time talking about this with you. Once again, why don't you just go ahead and remind people where they can find you? Yeah, sure. So if you want to hear me talk about Butt Boy or um, we did an episode <laughs> who on doesn't? Bordello You absolutely blood. do. Uh, cr- yep, Crank, Crank 2. All sorts of really good movies. You can go to uh, bloodybits.com and you can take a listen to that podcast. We also have a Patreon, patreon.com forward slash bloodybits, where you can get access to the blood bank, which will grant you access to over 3,000 rare and obscure horror and grindhouse films um, with our streaming server that we have. Wow. Um Lots of crazy stuff on there. And if you want to, you know, just talk to me, uh, three, two, three, four, the ax, I'll, I'll talk to you if you're lonely, you know, if, if you need, if you need someone to talk to you, you, you can go to the axes room. You you don't need to go to, uh, talk to Rumi and Mima's room. I <laughs> <laughs> love it. Awesome. Awesome. I will try not to uh, take advantage and leave you random voicemails at three in the morning. <laughs> It's fine. <laughs> cool, man. And then uh, are you on like uh, Twitter, Instagram, any of those things? Yeah. yeah. Um, Twitter, just look up uh, Eddie the Axe. Uh, any, anywhere cool. there's social media, at Eddie the Axe, that's me. Yeah, probably not going to be uh, too many Eddie the Axes out there. No. So, uh, And if so, just, just listen for a second. And if you hear a buttery smooth voice <laughs> getting you a little wet or a little hard, depending on which way you go, uh, that's probably him. Well, thank there you. There he so. is. You're too kind. 
Awesome, cool. Um, yeah, and then as far as we're concerned, we are Esoterica Cinema. You know this. You can find us on Twitter as well as Instagram. Uh, we've also got a kick-ass website, esotericacinema.com. We've got a web player on there, uh, some fun little features. And then we, of course, have the master list that we choose all of our films from. You can go there. You can download that list for free, see the 200 films that we have on there, of which we're only going to select 20 in a given season. So, uh, you know, for season three, we are looking to get some more films on there. And because of that, we do encourage you to reach out to us, esotericacinema at gmail.com or on any of the socials. Uh, also, you can find the Ryan Siebold or myself, Jason Aberrant, on those platforms as well. With that out of the way, we're going to go ahead and select our next film. So, Eddie, I do believe that mm-hmm. you have a uh, some sort of convention you're going to use to get us that number, yeah? Yes, sir. I've got my uh, Dungeons & Dragons dice. Excellent. Oh, you're such a nerd. You fit, you fit in so well here. <laughs> Yep. Uh, So I'm going to roll a D200, which is not a real dice. Um, I've finagled a a D100 with a D4. So we'll figure out what you're going to watch next. And ready, ladies and gentlemen, it is 30. 30. Okay. 30. Early up there. All right. We've... uh... I feel like we've had a couple around here. Oh, that's why it was. Yeah, because we had 26 come up recently for cash. And then at the very start of the season, we had 32 for Dead Alive. So 30. Very interesting film. This one's been on my list forever. Ryan, I know it's been on your list. We are going to be looking at Spike Lee's Crooklyn. Ooh. You ever seen that one, Eddie? Yes, I have. It's a wonderful movie. Excellent. And I have actually never seen this film. Ryan, have you seen this I have not either. No, no. We're going back to 1994. Spike Mm -hmm. Lee's vibrant, semi-autobiographical portrait of a school teacher, her stubborn jazz musician husband, and their five kids living in Brooklyn in 1973. Uh, I think this was my ad, actually, uh, to the list. So I'm really, really stoked to see this. Um, I've seen the Spike Lee staples. I do feel like this is Spike Lee staple adjacent. Uh, if yeah. you will, um, yeah, it's, it's like second tier if it's not like one correct. and a half tier. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. Right, right. Uh, Do the right thing, and and Malcolm X and uh, Mo Betta Blues, and then you got Crooklyn. I think right underneath that. So uh, as I'm going down the list, you know, I hit an abrupt stop on the Spike Lee joints, and I needed to get back to it. So here we are, Crooklyn. Pretty exciting. Nice. Yeah, and he's. Made, I mean, he's one of those filmmakers. He's just made so many movies that I think everybody probably, you know, has more than one handful of Spike Lee movies that they need to see. Oh, yeah. Yeah, dude. And it's Delroy Lindo. Who doesn't love Delroy Lindo? And You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> that guy's just lovable and everything. Love that guy. Hell, yeah. He's great. So, yeah. So, uh, I mean, and again, I still maintain that we're the only podcast where uh, you're going to go from Perfect Blue one week to Crooklyn the next. <laughs> Find me another. Go oh, ahead. Yeah. Point them out. Esotericcinema <laughs> at gmail.com. Let me know. <laughs> it has been an esoteric season. That's for sure. No doubt about it. Yeah. Definitely. Well, he definitely. did remake Old Boy, so it makes sense. Uh touche. Yeah, good he call. did. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I refuse to watch that movie because I have major issues with just the fact that he made it. And we're gonna save that conversation for another episode. Maybe next episode. <laughs> Maybe it'll come up next episode. Yes. Yeah. So uh, once again, Eddie had a great time here talking Perfect Blue with you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank and, you. Uh, yeah. Hopefully, I we will have a great time. 
Awesome, man. Awesome. Yeah, really appreciate the insight you brought to us. And uh, I'm sure that we will be seeing you around again sometime in the not-too-distant future. And for everyone else, we will see you next week on another episode of Esoterica Cinema. I can't believe my big presentation to the board is tomorrow, and I still have all this work to do. Wow, no kidding. Have you ever tried Perfect Blue? Perfect Blue? What's that? They're pep pills. My sister's an actress, and she swears by them. Here, she gave me some earlier. You can have them. Thanks. I'll take any help I can get right now. No problem. I'll leave you to it and come check on you in an hour. Hey, Susan, how's it going? Oh, Oh, man, man. everything's Everything's fantastic. fantastic. I've got got so so much energy. energy. Plus, I realized that since the Illuminati control the puppet strings of corporate influence, my presentation is entirely irrelevant. So now, I'm refocusing my efforts towards an algorithm that will finally answer why cannibalism is so unfairly maligned in this country. Huh. Hey, uh, I think I want to go phone my sister real quick. Just don't go anywhere. Couldn't if I tried. My legs stopped working minutes ago. You're actually pacing the room as we speak. Very quickly. Those are hummingbird legs. Did you know I have hummingbird legs now? Right. I'm going to go make that call now. Excuse me. Take your time, Timbo. Susan, I just got off the phone. Something is seriously wrong with those... Susan? Timbo! Timbo, is that you? Of course it's me. Where are you? Timbo, you're not going to believe this, but I'm ascended beyond my physical form. Look, apparently there was a mix-up between my sister's pills and Gary Busey's medication. Gary Busey? Who's that? Never mind that. Look, I'm going to go get a doctor, okay? Just please don't go anywhere. Kind of hard, but I'm already everywhere at once, Timbo! (sighs) What was this even a commercial for again? Perfect Blue Pet Pills. Available at Walgreens and everywhere drugs are sold.